Hi, this is Ashley, the host of Taboo and Murder and Slant and Rants. Today is Friday, January 11th, 2019, and we're on the eve of the longest government shutdown in U.S. history. Let's give this shit show some historical context after a brief summary of the current clusterfuck we're in as hostages of Donald Trump and his motherfucking wall. I'm also looking at you, Turkey Neck, and all other spineless senators. Your silence is deafening. From NPR yesterday, January 10th. I'm going to summarize, but I pull from this article heavily. It's okay. I'm a member. But for real, I never intend to plagiarize anyone, so please see the show notes or check out Twitter for links to the sources. I'm a single operation pod producer, so if there's a better way, let me know. The U.S. government has been operating under a partial shutdown since December 22nd. The shutdown, driven by a political battle over President Trump's demand that Congress approve funds for a wall along the border with Mexico, is touching the lives of Americans in a myriad of ways. My dog is licking his paws in the background. I apologize if you can hear that. Drives me bananas. Nine federal departments and some smaller agencies like NASA are affected, at least in part, by the lapse in funding. Agriculture, commerce, justice, homeland security, housing and urban development, interior, state, transportation, and the treasury. Approximately 800,000 federal workers have been furloughed or are being required to work without pay. Congress has already passed appropriations bills funding about three-quarters of the federal government, including Health and Human Services and Veterans Affairs, so those departments and agencies remain operational. Well, as operational as Veterans Affairs ever was, I suppose. Lots of important things are not affected by this shutdown. Medicare, Medicaid, and the Health Insurance Marketplace, a.k.a. Obamacare. Social Security disability checks and veterans' benefits, getting a passport, and the U.S. Postal Service as an independent agency whose operations are funded by sales of postage and services, not taxes, keeps delivering mail, as they have for years, while being in the whole hundreds of millions of dollars year after year. But other aspects of American life have become complicated, Scarce or messy since the shutdown started. Here's a look at how it's affecting the country. (coughs) Excuse me. Something that should fucking terrify everyone, like right now, is air safety. This should be our biggest threat as the politicians play chicken over a conjured up threat at our southern border. The Transportation Security Administration is part of the Department of Homeland Security. Many of its workers are considered essential. So many are working without pay, though a greater number than usual have been calling in sick. So far, lines in at airport security have not been significantly longer. TSA employees are among the lowest paid federal workers. I'm scared TSA families fear falling behind on bills, losing their homes. If there's no check on the 26th, I have no idea what we're going to do, 36-year-old Jacinda, whose husband is a TSA officer in Portland, told NPR. Our rent is due. The electric bill is due. Our cell phones are now past due. I'm scared, and I'm trying to be okay because I can't be sad every day for my kids, and I can't be stressed out because it affects how I parent. She said her husband is stressed out, too and that he has been given instructions on how to file for unemployment, though he's still working 40 hours a week. Also affected, 
air traffic controllers who are working unpaid. It's a very high-stress job, and you need to be on your game at all times, says Mick Devine of the National Air Traffic Controllers Association. There is a concern that as this goes on, the human factors aspect of this shutdown will take a toll on the psyche and concentration level of our members. Many planes are not being inspected, and pilot training is not being certified, says Captain Dennis Teiger, a pilot for American Airlines and a spokesman for the Allied Pilots Association. That's because many of the FAA safety inspectors aren't working. We are able to maintain a margin of safety and security, but every day another player is pulled off the field and it comes some point where the game cannot be played properly. That's terrifying. Jesus Christ, we are another layer of safety, Inspector Troy Tomey told the Miami Herald. We're the last check of the box. Taking us out of it, mistakes can happen. If this is not a fucking warning, I don't know what is. Food inspection. Who's making sure there isn't shit on our romaine? The U.S. Food and Drug Administration furloughed about 40% of its staff since the government shut down. FDA Commissioner Scott Goebel, that is not right, Scott Goebbels? <laughs> okay, Scott said that the agency has suspended all routine inspections of food processing facilities in the U.S., the Washington Post reports. He said he hopes to be able to bring inspectors to high-risk facilities as early as next week. That puts our food supply at risk, Sarah stating the obvious Schrocher with the Center for Science in the public uh, interest says in a statement, regular inspections, which help stop foodborne illness before people get sick, are vital. No fucking shit, Sarah. Thank you. Food stamps. The Department of Agriculture has announced it will continue to fund SNAP food stamps through February. The USDA says it can keep paying SNAP benefits up to 30 days beyond the expiration of the most recent government funding resolution. That means SNAP recipients will actually get their February benefits early, on or before that spending authority expires on January 20th. About 1 in 10 Americans relies at least partly on SNAP benefits to buy food. Jesus Christ, 10% of America relies on food stamps. Let's start that 70% tax on earnings over $10 million now. The USDA's other major nutrition assistance programs have enough funding to continue operations into February. That's a couple of weeks. That's not that long. Scientific research. Climate scientists from all over the world are meeting in Vancouver this month as the lead authors of the next International Climate Science Report. But at least seven U.S. climate scientists who were supposed to help write it aren't there. Scientists of NOAA, NASA, and other federal agencies can't work or travel for work because of the shutdown. Air quality monitoring is also affected. The Environmental Protection Agency manages sensors all over the country that detect various kinds of air pollution, such as ozone, industrial chemicals, and smog. Usually this data is released to the public right away, but because the EPA isn't operating at full strength, that's not happening. Air sensors run by state agencies and private institutions are still working, however. Coast Guard. While the other branches of the military are part of the Defense Department, the Coast Guard falls under Homeland Security. After some maneuvering, the government found a way to pay its military members on December 31st. 
The nearly 42,000 active duty members of the Coast Guard are still working as they are considered essential personnel, but it's not clear whether they will get a paycheck on January 15th. Former Coast Guard Commandant Thad Allen described a wide range of operations that continue during the shutdown, search and rescues along the nation's coastlines, efforts to stop drug smugglers, even the piloting of an icebreaker to Antarctica to break the ice around um, McMardo Station. I'm going to have to research that. I didn't even know that existed. I think it's pretty bad, Alan told NPR. I think when you have people providing emergency services to this country without pay, I think we ought to take a serious look at how we're governed. Yeah, preach. Native American Communities underserved in general, reliant more than any other group, and yet reported on the effects of the community are essentially non-existent. My words. The shutdown has meant that 2,295 of the Bureau of Indian Affairs 4,057 employees are subject to furlough. Phone calls to the Bureau go unanswered. The Indian Health Service, which is funded by Interior, provides health, health services for approximately 2.2 million of the nation's estimated 3.7 million American Indians and Alaska Natives. Most of its funds are appropriated for Native Americans who live on or near reservations in the western U.S., though some funding goes to those who live in urban areas. And the IHS is being hit especially hard by the lapse in funding. As NPR has reported, its only services that can continue are those that meet immediate needs of the patient's medical staff and medical facilities. IHS clinics are open during the shutdown and many staffers are reporting for work because they're considered essential, but they aren't being paid. Grants to support tribal health programs and preventative health clinics are currently suspended. Immigration Courts and Enforcement Here's where I'm going to try not to rage. The country's immigration courts are closed, and they already had a large, huge, back, huge backlog even before the shutdown. Member station KPCC reported last month that Los Angeles alone had fewer than 40 judges and nearly 74,000 pending cases. An irony the shutdown fight over border security takes toll on immigration enforcement. With the courts now closed, the people who were due in court have their cases moved to the back of the line and must have them rescheduled, which could add two or three years to their wait. It's not like when we come back we can absorb the cases, Judge A. Ashley Tabador, president of the National Association of Immigration Judges, told KPCC. There's no magical way to tell thousands of people to just come to their court hearings two weeks later so that the ones that were not heard can be heard. The shutdown has also halted E-Verify, a federal program that aims to prevent immigrants from working in the U.S. illegally. There's an irony there. Julie Pace, an attorney specializing in employment and immigration law at the Kavanaugh, I wanted to say Kavanaugh Law Firm in Phoenix, told NPR, we have an electronic wall for E-Verify that should be being used that the government has not funded. Some say irony. Some may use more colorful language that may cause one to toss in the word allegedly for ass-saving purposes. Federal courts, the federal judiciary, com the federal judiciary 
continues to operate during the shutdown using court fee balances and other funds. Its employees are reporting to work and remain fully paid, and it estimates it has enough money to sustain paid operations until January 18th so we can continue to operate the broken federal criminal justice system for another week. Sweet. The DOJ, largely shut down, nonetheless issued statements on southern bordered cases. If the funds run out before new appropriations are received, essential work in the federal courts will continue. Each court would determine the staff necessary to support its mission and critical work, the judiciary said in a statement on January 7th. In response to requests by the Department of Justice, some federal courts have issued orders suspending, postponing, or holding in um, absence. Ibeance? Civil cases in which the government is a party for a limited period subject to further consideration or until appropriated funds become available. Criminal cases are expected to continue without interruption. The arts. No one cares about, but they are important. After staying open for the first few days of the shutdown, the museums and institutions that make up the Smithsonian have all closed. As shutdown crawls on, artists and nonprofits uh, nonprofits fear for their fragile industry. The National Endowment for the Arts says it will honor its fiscal year 2019 grants and that it's currently accepting applications for 2020, though during the shutdown, nobody is working at the agency to answer any questions. And some arts organizations receive federal, federal grants on a reimbursement basis, which means they aren't sure when they will get back the money they paid up front. As you can imagine, any nonprofit cultural organization struggles with cash flow as they really need to expend funds before funds are received, Dorothy Ryan, managing director of Brooklyn Theater Company Theater for a New Audience, told NPR. And the question about when the National Endowment for the Arts will be distributing funds really hits home to us. With rangers furloughed, people have driven off-road and defaced trees at Joshua Tree National Park in California. Sections of the park had to be closed temporarily. On with the national parks. Many national parks have stayed open through the shutdown, though without staffing or servicing. While in some places, other parties have stepped in to help, state or local governments, tourist bureaus, or volunteer groups, not all is well. Two weeks into the shutdown, NPS announced it will dip into entrance fee funds to pay for staff and services at some parks, an unprecedented and controversial move as entrance fees are earmarked for visitor services, not operations and basic maintenance. At California's Joshua Tree National Park, which has stayed open without rangers, visitors drove off-road through parkland, creating new unsanctioned roads and destroyed some of the park's Joshua Trees. After first saying the park would close on January 10th, the NPS reversed course and announced that by using fee revenue, Joshua Tree will remain open with additional staff to deal with sanitation issues and protection of park resources. National Park Service plans to expand operations amid government shutdown. The former NPS director, Jonathan Jarvis, believes the national parks have been kept open to avoid the public outcry that occurred over their closure during the 2013 shutdown. Yeah, remember when everyone was saying that closing the parks was only to make a political statement? That was quaint and cute back then, huh? Thanks, Obama. 
In an opinion piece for The Guardian, Jarvis warns of an array of ugly consequences of leaving the parks open, human waste and waterways, overflowing trash, attracting wildlife and increasing human bear encounters, poaching, artifact theft, and damage to fragile natural features. One site where you can find NPS rangers during the shutdown, the Tower of the Old Post Office, the building leased to the Trump International Hotel. The building is owned by the General Services Administration. As NPR reports, the rangers were furloughed when the shutdown began, but then the GSA found some money to pay their salary and the rangers returned. Shutdown shutters many D.C. tourist attractions, but not the one in Trump's hotel. Representative Betty McCollum, incoming chair of a House subcommittee that oversees the NPS, told NPR that she has a lot of questions about the arrangement. The fact that it's a short-term agreement, the fact that it was a scramble to do it during the government shutdown, just has all the makings of, you know, why did this happen? Is this illegal? Is this ethical? Yeah, that question could be applied to, like, fucking everything Trump touches. Oil and gas drilling. The oil and gas business is booming, but much of that drilling is on federal lands and operators worry about a slowdown. Cooper McKim of Wyoming Public Media reports. The Bureau of Land Management says it will still it is still processing online applications to drill. However, it's not clear what's actually happening with those. Companies are waiting for leases, said Kathleen Sagma. Oh, God, that looks wrong. Of the Western Energy Alliance, a group of oil and gas companies. If you don't have the full lease hold, it's hard to do the exploratory work or full development work you're planning on. Yeah permits. Need to get approval and all that shit. I get it. That could be significant in Wyoming where taxes from oil and gas make up a third of state revenue. More oil and gas lease sales are slated for February and March, but some in the industry worry that if the shutdown drags on, they won't happen. One place that shutdown isn't slowing proposed drilling projects is Alaska. BLM is moving ahead with holding public meetings about oil and gas drilling uh, leasing in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, Alaska Public Media reports the Bureau is part of Interior, one of the departments affected by the shutdown. Rual, oh, I, I did not say that right. Um, G-R-I-J-A-L-V-A, don't know how to say that. The Democratic chairman of the House Committee of uh, Natural Resources wrote a letter to the acting secretary of the Interior asking how these hearings are happening while so many other essential services remain shut down. Fucking shocking, I know. BLM told Alaska Public Media that it's using funds from the previous fiscal year to continue working. Yay, capitalism and big oil. The District of Columbia. Washington, D.C.'s courts are funded through the federal government, and its marriage bureau has been shuttered, leaving some engaged couples in the lurch. So the D.C. Council just passed the Love Act, Let Our Vows Endure Emergency Amendment Act of 2019, to give D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser the authority to grant marriage licenses during the shutdown as member station uh, WAMU notes divorces and trials have continued as well. The federal government is also the largest customer of DC Water, and 
it told the utility company it wouldn't be paying $5 million of its quarterly bill during the shutdown. WAMU's Jacob Fenston reports the D.C. Water Board members joked about how to handle this big unpaid bill, perhaps by turning off the water at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. <laughs> water is leverage, he says. Uh, or water is leverage, says D.C. Water spokesperson Vincent Morris. No one wants to go without it. Well, isn't that going to sum up our lives in a couple of decades? Water is leverage. Water is leverage. No one wants to go without it. More like no one can go without it or will die. So there's a slant and rant synopsis of this political temper tantrum that is currently going on. Um, And I'm recording this midday on Friday. So by the time you hear this, shit may have already drastically changed. And uh, maybe I'll update it. This week, we were treated to a long-winded tweet um, by Donald Trump out of the Oval Office, cutting into everybody's Tuesday, really unfairly, basically just reiterating his fight with Chuck and Nancy on a much larger stage than he had been previously. Oval Office addresses are not new, but they certainly are usually reserved for issues of higher importance, such as um, national disasters, terrorist attacks, um, letting the nation know that we're going to war, etc. Just to give you a brief history. So starting with Herbert Hoover in 1929, he addressed the nation front. These are all from the Oval Office on peace efforts and arms reduction, and then on unemployment relief in 1931 and 1932 on the hoarding of currency. 1932 again on the campaign for community funds relief. Again in 32, concession to Franklin Delano Roosevelt Roosevelt in the 1932 um, election. Then we go to Roosevelt. 1933, he addresses from the Oval on the banking crisis, then on the New Deal program, then on the National Recovery Administration, then on the economic progress, then on achievements of the 73rd United States Congress and critics of the New Deal, then on government and capitalism, then on the Works Relief Program and Social Security Act. This is 1935. 36 on drought conditions, farmers and laborers. 37 on the reorganization of the judiciary. 1937 on the new legislation to be recommended to Congress. 1937 on the unemployment census. 1938 on the recession. 1938 on the party primaries. 39 the European War, 1940, the National Defense, 1940, on the Arsenal of Democracy, 1941, announcing unlimited national emergency, 1941, observance of Labor Day, 1941, on maintaining freedom of the seas and the Greer incident, 1941, on the declaration of war with Japan, 1942, on the progress of the war, 1942, on national economic policy and sacrifice, 42, on rubber, 42, on inflation and progress of the war, 42, report on the war, 43, on the coal crisis, 43, on the fall of Mussolini, 43, on the armistice with Italy and the third war loan drive, 43, on 
on the Tehran and Cairo conferences, 44 on the State of the Union, 44 on the fall of Rome, 44 on the D-Day landings, 44 opening with the Fifth War loan drive, 44 on the upcoming presidential elections, 44 report on the war, 44 observance of Christmas, 45 on the State of the Union. April 17th, 1945, on the death of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So this is by Truman. On, uh, in 45, end of the war in Europe. In 45, ultimatum to Japan. 45, on the dropping of an atomic bomb on Hiroshima. 45, on the Potsdam Conference. 45, end of the war in the Pacific. 1945, cessation of hostilities with Japan. 45, Reconversion of wartime economy economy um, to peacetime economy. Forty six status of um, reconversion program. Forty six on the railroad strike. Forty six on price controls. Ending of price controls. Forty seven on the veto of the Taft Harley bill. Forty seven food conversion or conservation to aid post war Europe. 47 on inflation, aid to Greece and Turkey, and the Truman Doctrine. 1949 on the signing of the North Atlantic Treaty. 1949 on the economy. 49 observance of uh, Democratic Women's Day. 1950 on the war in Korea. 50 on the progress of the war. 50 on the signing of the Defense Production Act. 50 on the war in Korea and national emergency. 50 observance of Christmas. 51 on the war in Korea and the removal of General Douglas MacArthur. 51 inflation. 51 international arms reduction. 52 mutual security. 52 steel mill crisis. 53 farewell address. 53 national security. Um, so sorry, now we're into Eisenhower. Um, so Eisenhower, 53, on the armistice of the Korean Peninsula, uh, 53, on the achievements of the 83rd Congress, 54, on the administration's purposes and accomplishments, 54, tax program, 54, State of the Union, 54, on achievements of the 83rd Congress, 55, on the upcoming convention in Geneva, 55 on the Geneva Convention, 56 decision to seek re-election, 56 on the Farm Bill veto, 56 start of the president's re-election campaign, 56 the Suez, the Suez crisis, 1957 on the situation in the Middle East and the Eisenhower Doctrine, 57 on the federal budget, 57 on mutual security, 57 enforcement of desegregation, 57 on science and national security, 57 on national security, 57 on the NATO conference in Paris, 58 on the United States mission in Beirut, 58 on the um, Forsman Stratus crisis. I have never heard of that. I'll have to look that up. 59 on security in the free world. 59 on the need for an effective labor bill. 59 on leaving for a trip to Europe. That sounds like you could have left a note. 59 on leaving for a trip to Europe, Asia, and South America. 60 on leaving for a trip to South America. Oh my god. Dwight, get a rest. So he just likes to tell everybody where he's going. To the Far East, to Paris, to South America, to uh, another trip to South America, etc. Then farewell address from Eisenhower on um, January 17th, 1961, which rings in Kennedy. So 
Kennedy on returning from Europe in 1961, 1961 on the Berlin crisis, 62 on nuclear testing and deterrent, 62 on the economy, 62 on the situation at the University of Mississippi. Must have something to do with little black girls getting... Um, hose down. 62 on the Cuban Missile Crisis, 62 encouraging the American people to vote in the midterm election, 63 civil rights, 63 on the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, 63 on the Test Ban Treaty and the Tax Reduction Bill, 1963 on the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Clearly that was done by Lyndon Johnson because Kennedy was dead. He was killed, as they say over on Queens. 1963, observance of Thanksgiving, 64, railroad strike, 64, signing of the Civil Rights Bill, 64, Gulf of Tonkin incident, 1964, on the upcoming presidential election, 1964, on recent events in China and the USSR, 1964, on the eve of the presidential election, 1965, on the arrest of those involved in the murder of uh, Violo Liozo, um, 65, on the decision to send troops to the Dominican Republic, 65, on the situation in the Dominican Republic, 65, on Vietnam and the United States Supreme Court, 65, on the signing of the Voting Rights Act, 66, on the resumption of bombing of North Vietnam, 66, on United States foreign policy in Asia, 67, on the riots in Detroit, 67, on civil disorder in the United States, 68, on the capture of the USS Pueblo by North Korean forces, 68, on the war in Vietnam and the 1968 election, 68, on the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., 1968, on the assassination of Robert Francis Kennedy, oh my god, what would history look like had that not happened. 68, announcing his decision to halt the bombing of North Vietnam. 69, on Vietnam. 69, on domestic programs. 69, on the rising cost of living. 69, on the war time in, uh, on the war in Vietnam. 69, on progress toward peace in Vietnam. 70, on the postal strike. 70, on progress toward peace in Vietnam. 70, on the situation in Southeast Asia, Cambodia. 70, on the Cambodia Sanctuary Operation. 70, on economic policy and productivity. 70, about a new initiative for peace in Southeast Asia, meaning Vietnam. 71, on healthcare. 71, on the second annual foreign policy report to Congress. 71, on the situation in Southeast Asia, Vietnam. 71, announcing a strategic arms limitation agreement with the Soviet Union. 71, announcing acceptance of an invitation to visit China. 71, outlying a new economic policy, the challenge of peace. This is Nixon. Sorry, forgot to say that. 71, um, observance of Labor Day. 71, on the post-freeze economic stabilization program. 71, nominating Powell and Rehnquist for associate justices to the Supreme Court. 72, making a public, uh, making public a plan for peace in Vietnam. 72, on the environment. 72, on equal educational opportunities and school busing. 72, Vietnam. 72, situation in Southeast Asia. Again, Vietnam. 72, address to the people of the Soviet Union. July 4th, 1972, announcing plans for America's bicentennial celebration. 
Uh, 72, look to the future. 72, on the eve of the presidential election. 72, visit um, victory speech. Um, 73, announcing conclusion of an agreement and peace in Vietnam. 73, about Vietnam and domestic problems. 73, about the Watergate investigation. 73, announcing price control measures about the Watergate investigations. Nomination of Gerald Ford and vice, uh, as vice president of the United States about politics to deal with the energy shortages, about national energy policy, and then in 1974 announcing answer to the House Judiciary um, Committee subpoena Watergate. Then 74, we round out with a message to the people of the Soviet Union on returning from the Soviet Union about inflation and the economy, announcing the resignation of his presidency. So Gerald Ford then Picks up the ball by pardoning Richard Nixon, um, September 8th, 1974. 74, pardoning of Vietnam War draft evaders. Uh, 75, energy. 75, signing the Tax Reduction Act of 1975. Um, 1975 on energy, inflation, and the economy, also on federal tax and spending regulations, 77 on the goals of the administration, 77 on energy, 77 announcing a national energy policy, 78 on the Panama Canal treaties, 78 inflation, 78 establishment of diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China, 79 on energy, 79 on consumerism and the crisis of confidence, 79 on the strategic arms limitation agreement, 80 on the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. This is Jimmy Carter. Sorry. I just assume everybody knows by the years now who we're talking about. Uh, 79 strategic arms limitation agreement, 80 on the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, um, 80, the failed rescue attempt of American hostages in Iran, 81, farewell address. So now we jump to Reagan on the economy in 81, also in 81 on the federal tax reduction legislation on the program for economic recovery observance of Christmas and the situation in Poland, 1982 on the 1983 fiscal budget, in 1982 on the federal tax and budget reconciliation legislation, in 1982 on the United States policy for peace in the Middle East, announcing the formation of a multinational force in Lebanon on the economy on strategic arms reduction and nuclear deterrence, 1983 on defense and national security, 83 on the Soviet attack on a Korean civilian airliner, on recent events in Lebanon and Grenada, on United States-Soviet Union relations, 84 decision to seek re-election, 84 on United States policy in Central America, 84, observance of Independence Day, 84, on the eve of the presidential election, 85, on the federal budget and deficit reduction, on tax reform, on the upcoming Soviet-United um, States meeting in Geneva, observance of Thanksgiving, on the space shuttle Challenger disaster starting out 86, then on national security, on the situation in Nicaragua, United States airstrike against Libya, aid to the Contras, 
um, observance of Independence Day, start of a campaign against drug abuse, on meetings with Gorbachev in Iceland, on the congressional and gubernatorial midterm elections, on the Iran-Contra um, affair, on the investigation into the Iran-Contra affair. That brings us to 1987, on the Iran-Contra affair, and then on the Venice Economic Summit Arms Control and the Deficit on June 15, 1987, continuing in 87 on the Iran-Contra affair and the administration goals, nomination of Robert Bork to the United States Supreme Court on the Soviet-United uh, States Summit meeting, 88, on aid to the Nicaraguan De uh, Democratic Resistance, 1989 Farewell Address, so then we move on to George H.W. Bush. We have September 5th, 1989, his address on drugs, observance of Thanksgiving, and then the United States invasion of Panama to round out 1989. Starting out 1990 on the surrender of Manuel Noriega, um, again, in 1990, on the crisis in the Persian Gulf, 90, message to the people of Iraq, October 2nd, 1990, on the federal budget agreement, January 16th, 1991, start of the war in the Persian Gulf, February 23rd, 1991, start of ground operations in the Persian Gulf War, February 22nd, 1991, on Saddam Hussein's announcing a withdrawal from Kuwait, February 27th, 1991, end of war in the Persian Gulf, April 18th, 1991, on education, September 6th, 1991, nomination of Clarence Thomas to the United States Supreme Court, September 13th, 1991, nomination of Robert Gates as CIA director, September 27th, 1991, on reducing U.S. and Soviet nuclear weapons, on November 9th, 1991, observance of Veterans Day, December 23rd, 1991, observance of Christmas, December 25th, 1991, on the collapse of the Soviet Union, May 1st, 1992, on the riots in Los Angeles, June 10th, 1992, on the balanced budget amendment, September 1st, 1992, on, uh, 1992, on Hurricane Andrew disaster relief, December 4th, 1992, on the crisis in Somalia. January 5th, 1993, his farewell address, because he was a single-term president. Bill Clinton, February 15th, 1993, on the National Economic Program. June 26th, 1993, U.S. strike on Iraq. August 3rd, 1993, on the balanced budget plan. October 7th, 1993, on the Battle of Mogadishu. April 22nd, 1994, on the death of Richard Nixon. September 15th, 1994, ultimatum to the government of Haiti. September 18th, 1994, on the peaceful um, catapult of the Haitian government. Uh, October 10th, 1994, on Iraq. December 15th, 1994, announcing a middle-class Bill of Rights initiative. Funny. June 13th, 1995, on the federal budget. November 27th, 1995, on the Dayton Agreement. August 17th, 1998, on the Monica Lewinsky Affair. August 20th, 1998, U.S. cruise missile strikes on, Afghan Af on Afghanistan and Sudan. December 16th, 1998, start of a U.S. and British bombing campaign against Iraq. December 19th, 1998, end of bombing campaign against Iraq. March 24th, 1999, on the NATO bombing of Yugoslavia, June 10th, 1999, on the peace agreement in Kosovo, January 18th, 2001, Bill Clinton gives his farewell address. Then we have G-Dub, 
handed that candy to Michelle Obama and everybody forgot he was a war criminal. August 9, 2001 on stem cell research and him being like, no fucking way. September 11, 2001 on the terrorist attacks in New York, Pennsylvania and Washington, D.C. October 7, 2001, beginning of military operations in Afghanistan. November 8, 2001 on national security. June 6, 2002, announcing the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. September 11, 2002, on the one-year anniversary of the September 11th attacks. October 7, 2002, on the Iraqi threat. February 1, 2003, on the Space Shuttle Columbia disaster. March 17, 2003, ultimatum to the government of Iraq. March 19th, start of war against Iraq. April 10, 2003, message to the people of Iraq. May 1st, cessation of hostilities against Iraq. September 7, 2003, on the war on terror. December 14, 2003, on the capture of Saddam Hussein. June 5, 2004, on the death of Ronald Reagan. January 30, 2005, announcing preparations for elections in Iraq. 2005, on the war on terror. 2005, nomination of John Roberts to the United States Supreme Court. September 15, 2005, on Hurricane Katrina, disaster and relief efforts. 05 on the elections in Iraq, May 15, 2006 on immigration, border security, drug policy, and the drug war in Mexico, September 11, 2006 on the five-year anniversary of the September 11th attacks, December 27, 2006 on the death of Gerald Ford, January 10, 2007 on the um, sectarian violence in Iraq, April 16, 2007 on the Virginia Tech shooting, September 25th, 2007 on the war in Iraq, September 24th, 2008 on the stock market crash, November 5th, 2008 on Barack Obama's victory in the presidential election, January 15th, 2009, he bid a farewell. And then, thanks Obama, here you are, December 2nd, 2009 on Afghanistan, March 21st, 2010 on healthcare reform, June 15th, 2010 on the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. August 31st, 2010, on United States policy towards Iraq. March 28, 2011, on the war in Libya. May 1st, 2011, on the killing of Osama bin Laden. June 22nd, 2011, on Afghanistan. July 25th, 2011, on the debt crisis. May 1st, 2012, on United States policy toward Afghanistan. June 28, 2012, on the Affordable Care Act, aka Obamacare. September 10th, 2013, on the war in Syria. September 10th, 2014, on the war in Iraq. November 20th, 2014, on immigration reform. December 17th, 2014, reestablishment of um, diplomatic relations with Cuba. July 14th, 2015, on the Iran nuclear deal. December 6th, 2015, on the San Bernardino shooting. December 12th, 2015, on the Paris Climate Agreement. March 16, 2016, nomination of Merrick Garland to the United States Supreme Court. <laughs> December 6, 2016, on the results of the national security policies of the Obama administration. January 10, 2017, his farewell address. Now Donald Trump. All right. January 31st, 2017, nomination of Neil Gorsuch of the United States Supreme Court. April 6th, 2017, U.S. Uh, strike on Shriot Airfield. June 1st, 2017, withdrawal of the United States from the Paris Climate Agreement. June 14th, 2017, on the Congressional Baseball Shooting. August 14th, 2017, on the Charlottesville Race Riots. August 21st, 2017, on the situation in Afghanistan. October 2nd, 2017, on the Mandalay Bay Shooting. October 13th, 2017, on United States policy toward Iran.
December 6, 2017, recognition of Jerusalem as the Israeli capital and moving the U.S. Embassy. December 18, 2017, on national security. February 15, 2018, on the Stoneman Douglas High School shootings. April 13, 2018, Allied airstrikes on Damascus and Hamas. May 8, 2018, termination of the Iran nuclear deal. May 24, 2018, cancellation of a summit with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. July 9, 2018, nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the United States Supreme Court. November 1, 2018, on illegal immigration and the Central American migrant crisis. January 8, 2019, on the government shutdown and the proposed United States-Mexico border wall. Okay, so I know that was a lot, and if you hung through it even at two times speed, I hope that you picked up on the varying degrees of severity in which the um, power of the Oval Office was used for political gain or for, you know, the purposes you would expect, like Happy Thanksgiving or here's an ultimatum to this country, Um but not, in my opinion, nothing rising to the petty level of like trying to get more followers to your real life tweets, essentially. So that was the justification for me rambling off um, half of a century's worth of Oval Office addresses, just to put it in context. So as we know, the government has shut, been shut down for 21 days, which means if it goes in tomorrow, uh, we break a new record. Yay! Not really the kind that we want to be breaking. Obvi. So I've gone over the effects. I'm going to assume, eh, I'm not going to assume. Let's just go over it real quick, right guys? Okay. In the United States, the government shutdown occurs when Congress fails to pass sufficient appropriations bills or continuing resolutions to fund federal government operations and agencies or when the president refuses to sign into law such bills or resolutions, like the one that was on his desk two weeks ago that would have given him everything that he wanted, a hundred senators backed that. It could have been done then. It wasn't the wall. Not as an actual element, but as a political wedge issue needs to remain in the public's eye. The 35% that are behind Trump require that. So let's just um, go over really quickly the previous um, shutdowns. So starting um, in 1980, and these are shutdowns involving furloughed workers. So in 1980, under President Carter, the government was shut down for just a day. 1,600 employees were affected, a mere $700,000 bill to the government for that one. 1981, one day shut down 241,000 Americans furloughed, which cost up to $90 million under Reagan. 1984, a one day shutdown, 500,000 furloughed workers cost $65 million under Reagan. 1986, one day shutdown, 500,000 furloughed employees, a cost of $62 million under Reagan. 1990, a three-day shutdown of only 2,800 furloughed workers, which resulted in $2.57 million um, for the federal government under G.H.W. Bush. November um, 1995, a seven-day shutdown under Clinton, furloughed 800,000 people and cost $400 million. 
1995 to 1996, there was a 21-day shutdown under Clinton, 284,000 furloughed employees um, for $400 million, again, for the government. Um, That's the longest shutdown to date, but Trump is like, hold my beer, hold my Adderall, hold my Coke, allegedly. 2013, under Obama, a 16-day shutdown, 800,000 employees were furloughed. I do not have a dollar figure for that. January 2018, three-day shutdown, 692,900 furloughed employees. I do not have a dollar figure for that. Um, So Obama is responsible for one. Um, Trump is responsible for two. This being um, likely the longest shutdown with furloughed employees. We're on day 21 now. We're going on to day 22, presumably tomorrow. So it will be the longest um, government shutdown involving furloughs. So Carter had one. Reagan had three. George H.W. Bush had one, Clinton had two, Obama had one, Trump has two. Just so that we have some, um, you know, perspective when we're talking about government shutdowns. So the government is shut down. We all know this. And Trump's most recent tactic is to use the threat of a national emergency for the border walls um, to try to um, force either legislation or he'll just go ahead and use that executive power, abuse it or call it very, very, very far reaching, depending upon where you fall. The United States has been in a near constant state of emergency for 40 years. Now, President Donald Trump is considering treating the border as one. On Sunday, Trump told reporters that he was considering invoking executive authority to resolve the government shutdown and secure funding for his border wall. I may declare a national emergency depending on what's going to happen over the next few days, Trump said, according to The Hill. I don't have a good Trump impression. Fortunately, immediately politicians and experts from both sides weighed in, disavowing this statement and threatening legal action. He'll face a challenge, I'm sure, if he oversteps what the law requires when it comes to his responsibility as commander in chief. Senator Dick Durbin, Democrat out of Illinois, said with conviction on CBS. While experts say it's possible for the president to use some of his emergency powers to build a border wall, they also agree it would be an overstep, at least a violation of constitutional norms, end quote, as the New York Times reports, sure to be settled in the courts. Reports show the president's claim about the threat of illegal immigration are unfounded, although the conditions for asylum seekers are worsening. See previous segment as to why. This is not the first time a president has uh, contemplated such authority. According to the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University, a vast set of laws gives the president greatly enhanced powers during emergencies. These include 136 statutory powers that touch on everything from the military to criminal law, and 96 require only the president's signature. Here's how we got here. The state of emergency emerges. Under the U.S. Constitution, presidents have amassed many powers that spring to life during crisis. 
President Harry Truman first declared a state of emergency during the Korean War in an order that remained in effect until Congress attempted to regulate this authority years later, according to the Lawfare Institute. In 1976, Congress passed the National Emergencies Act, codifying without truly restricting this authority. The law gives a president the power to declare a national emergency when she or he wishes. Oh, cute that you put she in there. Under the act, an emergency lapses after a year unless it's renewed, and it often is. President Jimmy Carter declared the first national emergency under the NEA in 1979 with an order blocking Iranian government property from entering the U.S. in response to the Iran hostage crisis. Carter determined that this situation, like the many to follow it, met the criteria of being an unusual and extraordinary threat to national security. Although the act is intended to combat threats, it also authorizes far-reaching powers, which critics consider a threat of their own. The Brennan Center has cataloged many it considers easily exploitable, including the ability to suspend um, a ban or human testing of chemical and biological weapons or a complete White House takeover of radio and wire communications. A president does not necessarily invoke all of these powers when declaring an emergency, nor are they all relevant or even possible. The researchers note that one statute still on the books exempts World War II veterans from the draft. However, as the Atlantic reports, Trump could still use the act for a presidential power grab, giving him control over, say, internet traffic and computer systems, including voter databases. Four Decades of Emergencies Since that first order in 1979, American presidents have declared 58 national emergencies. According to the Brennan Center's running count, 31 of these are still in effect, including the ban on Iranian property, which was extended in November of 2018. In other words, the country has been in some state of emergency for almost four decades. I'm going to be 34 this weekend. That's sad. These 58 national emergencies include declarations over dealings with Yemen, Syria, and North Korea, among others, sanctions against an array of terrorist groups, including one after 9-11, and various orders concerning nuclear weapons, diamonds imported from Sierra Leone, and the 2009 swine flu epidemic. Most recently, George W. Bush declared um, 13 and Barack Obama 12, most of which are still in effect, according to CNN. Don't know what that means. Oh, the 13th and the 12th. Okay, got it, got it. Trump's states of emergency. So far, the president has declared three national emergencies under the National Emergencies Act, according to the Brennan Center. The first was in December of 2017 when the Trump when Trump sanctioned 13 people for human rights abuses and corruption using an executive order. Many were generals and heads of state accused of ordering um, executions and mass murder, including ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya Muslim minority in Myanmar. The second came in September of 2018. Criticized as too broad at the time, the order sanctioned people found to be involved in hacking and social media campaigns for the purpose of influencing elections, political reports. In November, Trump declared a third national emergency over Nicaraguan President Daniel Ortega's regime and its use of indiscriminate violence and repressive tactics against civilians. 
The opiate crisis gets an honorable mention. Although Trump said he would declare a national emergency over the crisis, the White House designated a public health emergency instead. However, a year later, Pacific Standard found that officials squandered their legal powers under the declaration. Now the president is contemplating a national emergency that few are calling for. But as with the opiate crisis, the president's statements may never become a declaration. We can call a national emergency because of the security of our country. Absolutely, he said on Friday. Then we can do it. I haven't done it. I may do it. So clearly this political move of holding America hostage in varying degrees isn't new. What's new? Owning the shit out of the move. It's an open game of chicken at this point. I, of course, like all other humans, have opinions on who the hostage takers are. Using the military to reinforce the border over the holidays was a terrible political stunt and abuse of powers. And poof! The caravan of immigrants just disappeared after the midterms. The threat by Trump to declare a national emergency to get wall funding is disgusting. There's an emergency at the border, but not on the side Trump is speaking of. Hundreds have died in the deserts on their way to seek asylum. Men, women, and children are turned away at our border to be held in Mexico with hundreds of additional asylum seekers. These are temporary camps. People live on top of one another. Kids are getting sick because it's flu season. Two children have died recently. This is preventable. We do have a humanitarian crisis at the border, but we're the bad hombres. Weeks ago, when Paul Ryan and the Republican House still had majority power, there was a bill signed by all 100 senators that hit Trump's desk. He rejected it. The wall was the foundation of Trump's 2016 campaign, and it's the same for 2020. He won't give up the wall because he'd be giving up on his shrinking 35% base. So, in my opinion, 800,000 families are being held hostage by the Trump campaign. How about that for a taboo take? Um, allegedly. Now I'm safe, right? Thank you for listening to Taboo and Murder and Slanted Rants. Please review rate, and subscribe. You can reach me on Twitter at SMTaboo. Again, thanks for listening.